You're listening to the Aspen Entrepreneurs Podcast, episode 15, featuring Stacy Baer. Stacy is working to heal the wounds of war for himself and other veterans by returning to the places that he and others have fought to celebrate, the outdoors. Aspen Entrepreneurs, the Arts Campus at Willits, and Huts for Vets are proud to present Stacy Baer, National Geographic Adventure of the Year, discussing his film, Adventure Not War, where he and other Iraq war veterans return to ski one of the highest mountains in Iraq. View the film online by searching Adventure Not War. And if you'd like to support the cause, head to adventurenotwar.com. The Aspen Entrepreneurs podcast and showcase events are also presented in partnership with Klug Properties. To learn more, head to klugproperties.com. That's K-L-U-G properties.com. Once again, this is Aspen Entrepreneurs Podcast, episode 15, featuring Stacy Bear. So my name is Stacy Bear. Uh, you saw a lot of me and heard a lot of me up there. Um, huge thanks to Aspen Entrepreneurs and Dave and uh, the Rolling Fork community and uh, to Huts for Vets. I've, I've, Paul and I have known about each other a little bit longer than we've known each other. Um, I, I love the fact that he made a movie quoting one of my articles. Um, it's fantastic. And one of these days I'll actually get out um, with Huts for Vets. It's just never worked out yet. And um, it is in a lot of ways like coming home when I come to the Rolling Fork Valley every time I see Mount Sopris, I get excited, and um, I've been coming here for a lot of years since we moved out to Colorado, since I moved out to Colorado, and um, every time I come here, I always kind of shocked at how many people from all these different pathways in my life have become really good friends, and uh, I think one of the really incredible things about the Roaring Fork Valley is how quickly people become friends and how vulnerable and open people are here, and it's like, I kind of have to remember that I've only known Meredith for not quite a year. Um, who's the program director for Five Point, uh, and that's an amazing, incredible community. And uh, Patty O'Connell and I met also at Five Point a couple of years ago, and um, I think it was poop jokes that cemented an immediate friendship. And um, my wife knows that if anything ever happens to uh, Patty's dad, I'm probably going to become Patty's stepdad. So I love, I love Mrs. O'Connell so much. Um, and lots of other people. I, I even have uh, family here. My cousin-in-law, I guess. I married into this crazy Norwegian family. And um, they sent one of their emissaries to the Roaring Fork Valley as well. So Jason's here. Uh, but um, So we'll talk a little bit about, um, I'll just go through some of these slides to give a little bit more context about the film. And then there's some opportunity for sort of questions and answers. Um, I'll ask questions, and I'll, I'll love to hear your answers about that. Um, two things I want to point out, or probably more than two. Um, one is you can always tell an audience um, if, like, when they laugh, right? Like, you, a lot of you laughed at the landmine joke, so I'm immediately a little bit more comfortable because I know that you have a darker sense of humor, which I appreciate. We call that gallows humor, and it's the way you get through life. The, uh, or I get through life. The second thing is um, we push those trucks, right? And you saw us pushing those trucks and pushing those trucks. And this is the lie of cinematography, right? Because we pushed those trucks, and it took us almost an hour to push those trucks about 100 feet. <laughs> and we got done, and we were like, there's this huge snow wall. And we're like, why didn't we just stop? Like, we didn't know, right? Like, it was like 100 feet around this little curve. And um, 
you see, unfortunately, you don't get to meet a lot of the amazing characters we met over there, but you see this guy, Omar, and we're like, Omar, why were we pushing for the last hour? It's 100 feet. And he's like, you must get the car to the end of the road. Like, you, we were in the car. You, we didn't want you to walk. And I was like, we were pushing. Like, you don't know how to drive four-wheel drive, first of all, right? I mean, like, like the world over, if you want to see, like, like a bunch of men will tell you how to drive four-wheel drive, right? Like, no, no, do it this way. No, 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 move the d anyway. So like an hour to move that car 100 feet. And there it looks like we were pushing it, and we probably just got in and kept going, but nope. Um, so this is Iraq. I was in Iraq 2006 to 2007. Um, I joined the Army out of the University of Mississippi ROTC program, Stand Fast Mississippians. And um, I was in the Army 2000 to 2004, and I actually didn't deploy. And it was, it was heartbreaking that I didn't deploy, right? I mean, I joined up when I was 17 years old. It was the 90s, right? The, the worst deployment you could get at the time was Kosovo. Um, and 9-11 happened, and I thought for certain I'd go to Afghanistan, and my unit didn't go, and I had a bunch of by-name requests in, and I didn't go, and then we invaded Iraq, and I didn't go, and then I thought, gosh, you know, this is my generation's war, and I'm going to miss it. And I was heartbroken because imagine if you had trained to be a butcher your whole life, but you never got to make a cut of bacon. And that's how I felt about war in a very real sense, right? Not to make light of war, but I was a, I was a younger individual at the time. I still struggle with just war theory, but I had a philosophy degree, and I really believed in just war theory, and I, I still some days believe in just war theory. And um, so I got out. Weirdly enough, I had an opportunity to get out of the Army, and I went and I did. I was a civilian explosive ordnance disposal technician in Angola in the former Soviet state of Georgia. Um, a lot of people in this country don't know there's a country named Georgia. It can be a lot of fun telling people that there's landmines outside Dahlonega. Uh, that's what they assume. But there's a military college up there, so people will be like, oh, that yeah, makes sense. I don't, you know, Kentucky's up there, right? Who knows what they're going to do? Fair enough. My dad's from West Virginia. The joke now is if there was a civil war, it would be which side kept West Virginia and Kentucky. Um, that's why I'm so tall. I'm half inbred. Anyway, um, so then I got recalled out of the individual ready reserve. And I went to Baghdad and, and uh, spent a year there. And I think it's important to recognize that I don't, there's a lot of people who had it way worse than me. the horrific acts I saw and the bullshit I had to put up with, I would put my experience in Iraq somewhere in the middle, maybe trending a little bit, um, you know, like in the high 40s, somewhere in the high 40s to the, to the low 50s. But, and that was a challenge for me coming home because I was like, you know, I wasn't in Operation Anaconda, I only went one year, why do I feel this way? Why do I feel so bad? And I think it's one of the things as I look back on the last 11 years of my journey home and have really begun to realize is that um, it's okay to, to have trauma, it's okay to feel pain, and it's okay to let other people feel pain and have pain. And you don't need to measure your pain against somebody else. Just because somebody else is hurting, that's not gonna take away your hurt, necessarily. And for me, that pain and that hurt was a big part of who I was as a, as a veteran and as a service member, and I didn't wanna give up that pain because that's what, in many ways, I had allowed myself to become. And it was really comforting, right? And um, I mean, how many of us have spent time, you might be in a really shitty situation, but it's comfortable because you know how to deal with that every day, right? And pushing yourself out of that can be a really painful situation. And um, 
but thankfully, one of my buddies got me out climbing, and that led to Adventure Not War, which started out as a selfish project. Um, it still is a pretty selfish project uh, in a lot of ways. And one of the things, you know, it started out really just as I'm going to go have an adventure in these places where I've been to war or cleaned up after war or was supposed to go to war. Um, and then the last couple of weeks and the last couple of months, any any uh, any science fiction fans that are willing to raise their hand. <laughs> This is what I love about the Kindle. I can read fantasy novels and nobody knows. <laughs> like, look at that guy reading. He's so smart. And I'm like, what's the dragon going to do next? I hope it's okay. But um, there's this amazing, amazing, amazing author, Ursula Le Guin, who died this last year or maybe two years ago now. Um, and if you're looking for a great podcast, um, LeVar Burton Reads is a phenomenal podcast from Reading Rainbow. He reads stories. He's a total sci-fi dork. Big surprise, right? Who's on Star Trek for all those years? Or was it Star Wars? <laughs> Just kidding. I got to see who's really upset about that. But um, he, he read a really beautiful story from Ursula Le Guin. And one of the things that you realize if you read a lot of Ursula Le Guin, and so spoiler alert, if you want to read the books, like plug your ears, she avoids metaphors of war. And so what I realized is what we're doing with Adventure Not War as well is hopefully helping people to reframe how they think about their day-to-day -day life. Because in our day-to-day -day lives, and especially like, the worst thing, but how many how many people served, by the way, in the military or DA civilians, any Coast Guard? <laughs> Just kidding. Um, my buddy, that's a horrible joke. My buddy Tony Goldstein lives in Leadville, and he was in the Coast Guard, and I didn't. I'd never met anybody from the Coast Guard until I met him, and I just it's like, wow, are you real? He is actually. Um, but uh, and we use all these metaphors of war, and and sometimes as, as veterans like. Raise your hand if you've ever been in a conversation and somebody's like, yeah, I, was, I totally know what you mean about the brotherhood and stuff. Like, I was, I was like third team all county uh, on my football team. And, I mean, there's, there's, you know, we were in the trenches like every day. So I, I get it, man. It's like brotherhood, right? And, like, on the one hand, like I just said, like, like a little hypocritical here. I'm like, don't minimize other people's pain, but also don't equivocate your experience necessarily. Like, it's okay that you didn't serve. It's okay that you maybe weren't in combat. Like, you know, the, these things are all okay, but, um, and you, you hear that, like, especially in sports, uses a lot of metaphors at war, and you hear, um, like, I was at a, I live in Salt Lake, in Sandy, Utah, actually, and I was at a University of Utah basketball game, and it was, like, Veteran Appreciation Day, and I was like, crap, I came on the wrong day, I don't want to have to hear this, and Coach Kristobiak is like, he's out there on half court, and he's like, we want to thank you veterans up there, because if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't be here today. And I was like, thinking to myself, and I was like, I was going through some of the stuff I did, and I was like, was there ever a time where I was like, you know, we've got like a four-person stack, and I was the team leader, but I was also the biggest guy, and my team was always like, oh, you're going in first, sir. Like, fuck you, you're going in first. You can take bullets for like six of us. And keep going. We've seen you rage. So you're going in. So you're like stacked up on a door, right? And then right as you go in, it's like, this is for Pac-12 basketball. I'm coming in. You know, like, so like, again, just be careful what you're equivocating when people are like, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. And it's like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if me invading Iraq and you playing like Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis is like, if that works out. But I appreciate what you're trying to say, Coach. Um, so anyway, I tend to wander. Um, it's fun. Give me a microphone. Uh, so you know, that's I, I guess what I'm trying to say is a lot of this, too, is trying to move. Um, I quit my job in August. 
so I could focus um, pretty much full time on Adventure Not War and spreading this message and growing this message. And hopefully, we'll be doing some stuff you know that people can can engage in here in the United States as well as well as some other places overseas and keep growing this project. Afghanistan, Bosnia former Soviet state of Georgia. I'd love to be one of the first ski mountaineering teams in North Korea. Um, lots of places, unfortunately, we could go around the world that have experienced war and have experienced war because of your taxpayer dollars. But I would encourage you to try and use metaphors of adventure versus metaphors of war when you talk about things. And when you're skiing, when you're climbing, when you're rafting, when you're doing whatever it is you lovely, wonderful mountain folk do here up in the Roaring Fork Valley, I hope that you don't compare your adventures to war because you're not laying siege to a mountain, you know? You're, you're, just, you're just struggling to climb up it. Um, and so that's a little bit about where Adventure Not War has kind of come from and where I think it's gonna go. Um, it was cool, Erbil is, for those of you who know, it is in the Kurdish Autonomous Region. Feels a little bit like cheating to say, hey, ski Iraq, and we were in Kurdistan, but it's the international boundary. There is no Kurdistan yet. Um, and it was pretty wild just to be in Erbil and be like, oh yeah, if you just turn left up there and drive for four hours, you'll be back in Baghdad. Um, you know, most of the people in the places that we go to war, if they don't have to fight, they won't. And they do a lot of the same things that we do. Um, they just maybe dress a little bit differently um, and have some different headdresses. And I grew up in South Dakota and quite frankly, these folks you know, it's nice not to see so many Packers hats and Vikings hats. Um, this is in the refugee camp in the north. Um, this is the Yazidi region. Um, the Yazidi believe um, in a very different religious system than you've probably ever encountered. Although there are a lot of Yazidi refugees in Nebraska. And if you go to Iraq and you meet a Yazidi, they will ask you if you've ever been to Omaha and maybe know their cousin. Because... You know, in the same way that people are like, when, when I wear the Ski Iraq t-shirt or other people talk about, you know, experiences they've had and people are like, oh, it's a really funny joke. And you're like, no, we actually did it. <laughs> and they're like, oh. And it's kind of the same thing where when somebody's like, you know, we can laugh and be like, oh, yeah, like, I totally know your cousin in Omaha, right? I mean, America's tiny. Um, we can make fun of them, but then we're like, you know, but you'd never be able to ski in Iraq. So you kind of realize... Um, just the, like ignorance is one of the things that binds humanity together. So um, these folks have, they worship their um, visual representation of God is a peacock. A lot of people think they're satanic, they're not. Um, they count something like 172 different genocidal events in their history. And Saddam Hussein tried to annihilate them, ISIS tried to annihilate them. And I mean, you can see they look like very frightening People, I mean, look at this, look at that face. I mean, that is intense, right? She's coming for you. She was actually stuck. She was afraid to go down any further. And like, fair enough, like she looked up, like she's playing on the playground and then all of a sudden this like giant bald white dude shows up. She's like, I don't wanna go down anymore. Um, we did some manual labor. Um, it's really easy, I think. There's a fine line between poverty and war tourism and actually engaging in the community. I think sometimes we went on the wrong side of that line, but we did try and help out. Um, we built, did our best to build a couple of cement platforms for some outdoor classrooms. They probably had to redo it the next day, I don't know. Um, 
This is at the entrance to Eden, according to the Yazidi people. Um, Adam and Eve found the tree just a few blocks away from where these nice gentlemen are making checking IDs. Um, this is also right next to Eden, just a very typical scene, um, really different type of lifestyle, right? Like, what'd you do in your extracurricular activities? Where you, oh, I was in the band, and, and I sheep herded a lot. I was a goat herd. Um, this guy here um, is the number two individual in the Yazidi faith, and um, I was trying to get some, you know, like... <laughs> Typical American, I'm like, can you give us some sort of like spiritual advice for Yazidi? And what's funny about that is they're like, he's like, you can read the book. <laughs> like, you know, if you want, you can read the book. I don't, I don't know what I have for you. And he's like, you can't join, you can't choose to be Yazidi. You have to be born into the faith. And so basically for the rest of us that are non-Yazidi, if we're lucky in our next life, we'll be born into the lowest tier. There's three kind of tiers or caste systems. And if, if we do well in this life, we'll be born into the third tier of the Yazidi life. And so very strict caste system. But I kept kind of pressing, right? Like I wanted some sort of spiritual nugget from this individual. And finally he's like, yeah, I got something for you. And he's like, um, tell your Christians to stop trying to convert us. <laughs> and uh, I was like, all right, all right. That's cool, man. That's cool. I get it. Um, but what's funny about that is there were there was like some random German dude, and he was like, they all look like Orthodox, right? Don't they look like Orthodox Christians to you? And I was like, God, for once, I'm not the most culturally insensitive person here. It was really fantastic. Love German tourists. Um, this is looking out. You saw this scene before. This is the Zagros Mountains. Um, we kind of went it around here. Um, the tops of those mountains, for the most part, are Iran, like right on that ridgeline. We know that we have won the war, by the way, when um, some American veteran goes back and opens up a microbrewery in Shoman. And we were joking. We're like, oh, it's like Shomani, right? And they're like, no, that's not how you pronounce it. And we're like, no, but it's like, it's like the Chamonix of Kurdistan. It's like Shoman. They're like, no, no. We're like, no, but that's a nice thing. Then you have to try to explain fondue to somebody. This is not fondue, right? I mean, this is um, an incredible hospitality. People were super stoked that we were there. Um, typical meal for us, not necessarily while we were camping, but certainly while we were um, at our homestay in Omar with Omar. Um, this is the drive up, just incredible, incredible mountain range. Lots and lots of skiing lines that aren't mined that we didn't ski. Uh, this is us moving up. Um, you can see Robin in the back. This is like a traditional Kurdish guitar. And we had uh, one Kurdish guide with us, and he insisted that we bring it, which was, and this guy, like, how many of you have heard the phrase cotton kills? Like, cotton only kills Americans, because, like, he was wearing, like, two pairs of sweatpants, two cotton pairs of sweatpants, like, cot two cotton hoodies, like, cotton socks, and we're like, oh, you, sh you should drink some water, and he's like, no, it'll slow me down, like, you don't want to be too hydrated. <laughs> and, and he lived. The rest of the world is tougher than us. They really are. Um, this is a landmine sign. So, I mean, I've worked in landmines. I felt pretty confident that you could ski over landmine with three to four inches of snow, but nobody wanted to test me on that. So I decided not to test anybody on it either. This is the man, Reban Violin. He, <laughs> he also had a, like, he had a girlfriend in Houston, Texas that he met on Facebook. 
And right before we had showed up, she had broken up with him. He was heartbroken. He wanted to know if we knew her. And, um, and uh, she was dating another guy in the village now. Like, and it was like, oh, dude, it's just, it's not real. You know, it's like, it's some guy named Jeremy, and he lives in his mom's basement in Allentown. And he was like, what does that mean? And, like, he showed us pictures, and we're like, that girl is not, you're like, oh, man. Like, I don't know who this person is. It's like, they're trying to scam people in Iraq. Like, how low is that? Like, it was so sad. But um, just a really great guy. Uh, we tried this year, and we weren't able to. We were trying to get him over to be a lifty at Powderhorn over in, in, in Grand Junction. And we'll keep trying. Great dude. Um, they were really upset that we didn't put any of their skiing into the film because they're really proud of their skiing. The reason we didn't do that is because we thought American audiences would think that we were making fun of them or had a partnership with that Instagram account, Jerry of the Day. Um, but they're just, I mean, the great thing about watching the Kurdish um, ski is just that pure joy, you know? And that's really what it's about, right? Is that pure joy and freedom and feeling like you're flying. For skiing, I think for snowboarding, the joy is you, you just stole something and then you got away with it. I don't, I don't know. This is, um, I used to snowboard, and then I, then I got probation um, and started skiing. Just kidding. It was toe hang, and like, you see me walk. I can barely walk. Like, I could figure out a snowboard. Um, this is Mount Halgard. This is just me using the pointer. Um, beautiful mountain. We obviously didn't ski down this face. Um, so you can see this little light right here. That's, these lights are the I Iranian border. So we were just right there on the valley. The Halgard's the tallest mountain fully in Iraq because the tallest mountain in Iraq um, is, is just off frame, like kind of over here by this pillar. Do you know this is, actually isn't concrete? It's just painted. Um, anyway, so we thought it would be a bad idea to like hike up to the Iranian border patrol, like high five them and turn around. This didn't seem like a good idea. Although um, people always ask, right? They're like, what does your wife say about this? Um, so my partner has been a huge reason I went and did this. She actually, she pushed me. She actually told Dave, I think, to stop texting. She's like, he's going to be fine. You need to relax. Um, but she really pushed me on this. And part of it, she was like, look, you know, Wilder's like two. If you go now and you don't come home, I'll be able to remarry. And she'll just think that guy <laughs> was always here. So it's really good to have honesty in conversations. Maybe not that much, but um, this is us climbing up. So the original plan was that I was gonna, we were gonna go over, we were gonna move up into kind of a high base camp down here. Um, none of the Griff and Robin had never really done any ski mountaineering before. We they've done a lot of backcountry skiing. They're very competent skiers. It doesn't take much to be a more competent skier than me. Um, I started skiing at 35. So the. Um, so I wanted to kind of go over a ropes class with them and do a little bit more technical training than we had done some technical training, but we had a, a rapidly shrinking weather window. And so we just went for it. And um, we made the decision, I made the decision unilaterally not to use a rope. Um, it was just at that point where you maybe if you knew how to use a rope, you could use a rope. But I was really worried that we would get flossed off if somebody fell with the rope. But fairly, I mean, not super technical, but Pretty solidly technical ski mountaineering. This is us on the top. 
uh, if this guy right here was our guide, he had been to the mountain before. He was part part of the outfitter that we used, and uh, his name's Jan Bakker. And if you see, North Face did a five, like a six minute version of this, and in that film. Um, there's subtitles for him, and we just did that to mess with him. Like, the dude speaks perfect English. But we were like, we put subtitles, and the North Face didn't ask us to remove them. So we were like, this is hilarious. So it's our opportunity to troll Jan, because he's Dutch and a snowboarder. So, like, how else, how else do you do it? And he was so upset. He was like, what? why are there subtitles, like, yelling into the phone? And Max Lowe was like, um, I can't hear. I, I just, what, could, you, could you slow down? But he was a really good dude. He, um, yeah, probably should not have tried to snowboard off the top of the mountain. But this is us coming down. This is one of my favorite pictures. I just, I mean, the mountains in Iraq are absolutely incredible. They're as beautiful as anything anywhere. Um, this is this is roast chicken. <laughs> this guy was like, "Why do you why do you want me to keep doing it?" You know. Like, because we've never, like, I've never seen this before. This is amazing. How cool would fast food be if this is what it was? You're like, you're going to Kentucky Fried Chicken, and there's, like, some dude. He's like, yeah, what do you want? You want an extra crispy? <laughs> so you may have noticed at different times, like, I show up in the movie with a mustache, and other times I have a beard. Why is that? Because if you're making a documentary, you should not change your appearance. However... We were convinced, Max Lowe and I were convinced, that if we looked more Kurdish, perhaps the weather would participate better. So um, this is my 1970s highway patrolman slash stripper look. And what, when I got that, I, like, I could FaceTime with my, my, my family back home, and I'd always FaceTime like this. So they couldn't like, quite see the mustache. And when I finally got home, Mackenzie is my wife. She's like, get back out the door until that thing grows back in. So I just, Patty O'Connell has a phenomenal mustache. I don't have that. I also learned I have a very fat neck. And it didn't work. Who knew? But don't you like to? This is really funny. I love, that, I love the fact that he wanted me to have sideburns. Um, this is us going into another region after I got my mustache. Uh, we're across the valley here. This is an incredible area. Amazing shoots. So much to explore and discover. And this area has no landmines on it. Um, most frightening avalanche conditions I've ever been in. The snowpack turned isothermal. We had a whoop on a slope that was less than 30 degrees that collapsed. It was very frightening, um, which is a real shame because this is one of the most, I mean, far more aesthetic in many ways than Mount Halgard uh, in terms of the ski lines. Um, there's a picture of our, of our local hero getting it done. And like, yeah, he's skiing out. Max is taking photos, and what you can't see is like this is running. Like this just ran as an avalanche. Like it was crazy. It was, it was very frightening. Um, we stayed in this mountain hut. This is us just looking off if the snowpack was good. It's, it's so many amazing lines. So Faction is uh, my ski partner. If you guys know who Candy Tovex is, I don't ski that well at all. And um, I was on a phone call with their team in Verbia, and I was like, look, you guys could just watch the mountains and come down here and do some really incredible skiing. And um, all you hear in the background, like, there's quiet, right, in the background. I'm trying to explain to them where it is. And I'm like, yeah, just look for a weekend storm, you know, and they'll, like, fly down. It's, like, two hours from Paris. Go up. There's this place. It's going to be amazing. Absolute silence. And the only thing I think Candy Tovex has ever said to me was, no. 
That's French for no, if you know. Um, last night, typical market. Way cooler than Walmart. And um, yeah, this is the mountains looking back. Uh, if anybody has questions, Adventure Not War, we've got a top secret mission coming up in uh, February and March. If you know, don't tell anybody. And if you don't know, I'm not going to tell you. Uh, but hopefully, um, I know I'll be back for Five Point Film Festival, if not before then, and hopefully we do a good enough job with our next film project that that film will be out um, hopefully in November of 2019. Aspen Entrepreneurs Showcase and Podcast is presented in partnership with Klug Properties. Chris Klug spent 20 years doing what he loves, riding a snowboard on the World Cup circuit. After visiting ski resorts all over the world, he was convinced that there was no place like Aspen Snowmass. Chris brings this passion for snowboarding to the surrounding community, his family and friends, and his clients. Klug Properties has helped to create a powerful marketing platform with expansive social media networks, digital media distribution, and the worldwide reach of Sotheby's International Realty. Chris Klug only knows how to do business one way, with integrity and a commitment to go above and beyond for his clients. For more information, visit klugproperties.com. That's K-L-U-G properties.com. So thanks a lot for having me and I'm happy to take some questions. Yeah, yeah, so the question was, are we going back to that village to build anymore? So the, the refugee situation, and, and the hardest part about the refugee situation in many ways is navigating the number of international NGOs that are working there far more than it is to work with the people and make a commitment there. Um, sometimes people think with Adventure Not War, they're like, well, you take other veterans back to these places. And I'm like, that'd be a really cool idea, but I'm actually going back with people to do specific objectives. Even though I think it's really important to be in the mountains and not always be extricative or um, you know, taking from the landscape. Like, I had a goal of wanting to go and ski big mountains, and that was my goal, right? I didn't just want to go for a walk in Iraq. I wanted to ski big mountains. And I felt it was important for the rest of the team and for the story to gain deeper context. Um, I would love to go back and spend more time in Kurdistan. I'd love to go back and spend some time exploring that region. There's tremendous mountain biking, for example, in that region. And I think those kids, you know, being able to show them what they can do and, and what economic opportunities are available to them is really important. Um, but there was one fractured relationship coming out of this trip, and that was with the lead nonprofit partner that got us into that village. And Nobody's quite sure what happened on our side. So I think we could get back in there, but. Oh, totally. So the original goal for this was to go paddle down in Basra and go into the marshes. And I would love, and if I do, I mean, it's relatively easy to get into Kurdistan. Um, and, and now, you know, tourist groups do go to Baghdad in southern Iraq and stuff like that. So I think. I'd love to go back. Baghdad was a phenomenal city. It's a beautiful city. And 
like I had a really different experience than a lot of other people too. I mean, I had a lot of daytime hours. A lot of my job was to get to know people and try and help them out. So I kicked down plenty of doors. I got shot at plenty of times, but um, I thought Baghdad was just a really cool city. I don't know. Um, has George, sorry, has uh, George Bush seen this? Um, I don't know. Um, we're trying to get a distribution partner now still. It's taken a while. People haven't really known what to do with the film, um, which has been, I know we've made people think, but this is actually the most audience interaction we've had. A lot of times people are just quiet. Um, a lot of people in more, I guess, positions of power maybe have seen this film a little bit, but not too much. Um, I think we'll be better suited in our next project to really engage more, to figure out a national tour type thing. Um, I don't know. I'd love to know what he thinks. Yeah, so the question was about, you know, taking this into high school and considering options. Most high schools wouldn't necessarily want the strong language. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, I once got invited to speak at Western State and, um, this kid was like, I'm thinking about dropping out and like skiing for a couple of years. And I was like, go do it, live your dream. And then I was like, I'm never getting invited back. And it's weird, not a lot of colleges invite me back. I also, uh, once, um, I'm pretty open about my stories of addiction and stuff, and I got this call from this very um, conservative, lovely college uh, down south. And they were like, we'd love for you to come, you know, we think you're a great role model. We'd love for you to come, you know, be our commencement speaker. And I was like, ah, oh, this is so cool. I could be a commencement speaker. And I was like, you guys should probably check out what I write. <laughs> like, I just, I don't, you know. And then I get this call back and they're like, thank you for pointing us towards your writing. We found somebody else. Um, but it's cool. Paul likes my writing. That's all I need. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not anti-military. I think I think the military is a fantastic thing for a lot of people. I think you know I am your veteran. All the veterans in here, we're your veterans. We're your military, um, and I think joining the military can be a fantastic option for people. What I would encourage people is to go in with eyes wide open and be like, "Look, there's actions have consequences, and when you join the military, you write a and it's different than our Vietnam brothers and sisters, right? Many of them were told, you have to cash a check. You have to, you have to sign a check with your name, and we're going to cash it. In an all-voluntary system, we hand over the check. We sign the check and hand it over. And I just think it's really important for people to be aware of that. And I think when you're 17 or 18, you're not. Um, and I think that's problematic. And I think, I think the only people that should be allowed to fight wars around the world are men and women over the age of 45. But I do, you know, um, I tell you what, I'm glad our men and women went to try and stop a genocide of the Yazidi people. I'm glad our men and women went to fight in Germany and went to fight in Japan. And I know those wars are also far more complicated than just stopping Nazism and the rise of Hitler and the anti-Semitism because we also turned away all the Jewish refugees, right? I mean, so many Jewish refugees that we left behind when we could have helped. What's happening in Yemen now? I'd go fight that. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where you realize what a privilege it is to be able to ski in the first place, right? Um, but to be able to go back to Iraq and back to a place and ski, and I think it's one of the things I have to, I struggle with the balance of like, is this worth 
is this the highest and best use of my time? But I don't know what we were placed on this earth to do if not experience joy and try and help other people build towards that joy. And I think a lot of times we struggle because people don't want to suffer. And so it goes back to what I said earlier. They just sit and stew in their shit as opposed to um, pushing themselves a little further out of it. Yeah, I mean, it was cool. Like, you know, in, in Iran, we won uh, best of fest and at five point. Uh, I think we came in second. But um, <laughs> I don't know who's on the jury or anything. Uh, I know, bless their hearts, the five point jury, right? Bless, that's such a Southern thing to say, right? Bless, and if you're in the South, right, and somebody's like, well, bless your heart, they might as well be like, and um, I just realized you brought your, thankfully, he's not really paying attention. He's, done so that's okay i'm glad you're here all right i hope you get to skip school on powder days right uh right on um thanks for coming um so sorry uh but yeah and i ran we um we didn't even know that they like found our film but there's these great things you just apply online and it goes to a bunch of film fests and we won um Best of Fest at the Tehran International Sports Festival. And the Iraqi ambassador to Iran picked up our award. And weirdly enough, we haven't been able to get that back. Um, but it is something that, you know, for us, like I was like, that's all we need, you know, that, um, and uh, I'm gonna betray a little bit of my political leanings here when I go out on a limb and say, now I know what it's like to be an Iranian citizen. <laughs> you know, like you're like, what was that, Mullah? <laughs> really? <laughs> that's what you think we're gonna do? And um, you know, I think for, for us, it was a huge statement that the Iranian people saw us as humans and appreciated the journey that we were trying to go on to change our narrative. And um, you know, one of the first casualties in the Iraq war was a young gentleman whose last name is Ritsani. I worked very closely with his, oldest sister, his older sister, Nusheen Ritsani, who is leading the way in the Pars prescription movement out of UCSF Benioff um, Children's Hospital in Oakland. And um, he died by suicide when he was in Iraq and he's an Iranian American. And I think we're at peril when we begin to talk about people in these broad sweeping arrays without recognizing the commitments that people of the, that ancestry and history uh, have made for our country and have made globally. And um, you know, it really was, I think, the most meaningful. Like, we got into Tribeca, we got into Cannes, we, you know, um, which, which I guess you say Cannes, I always thought it was like Kenne, because I didn't, I didn't realize you pronounced the S in France. So my name would be like Tacy, I don't know. Um, but the, yeah, that was really incredible that the Iranian people, I think, saw us as human. And uh, I'm really excited to, there's a pretty, there's a big ski culture in Iran, and I look forward, that's definitely on the list, is to go do some backcountry and some resort stuff in Iran. Yeah, that was fake news, but keep going. <laughs> yeah, totally, and I mean, there's, I mean, I think the important thing also to recognize is most, honestly, most veterans come home and do fine, percentage-wise, right? Um, or figure things out on their own, um, for better or worse. But for me, and, and that was the thing, like I had, you know, 18 to 22, and then I was given a house. I was given, you know, I knew what to do from five to nine every day, right? You're up in your physical training and you're working and you're doing everything at nine and working all day. And um, I sort of lived on the economy, but 
you know, I ate most of my meals at a dining facility. I didn't really worry about food um, or grocery stores. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'd spent roughly four years straight overseas and in combat zones or immediate past combat zones. And then you're like, oh, you know, you, you go home on leave. And what do you go home on leave, right? Like, you know, I mean, if you're anything like me, you ate at like Outback Steakhouse and Chili's, you drank a shit ton of beer. Um, I did a ton of cocaine. And then you like, 24 hours before you left, you're like, well, got to let the cocaine get out of the system, so I'm just going to go wrecked one more time, and then I'm going to fly back, right? And then you come home, and you, you kind of, I kept doing that for, like, a few years, but I just never went back to the Army, and it was, like, you know, it was pretty depressing after a while. Um, and I found myself, and I've written about this before, and I found myself, like, right away when I came home, I came home early. Um, we got home a little bit early. I didn't tell my family when I was coming back to Fort Bragg. I didn't want them to be there. Um, I spent three or four nights like in the strip clubs around Fayetteville, North Carolina. And then they said you could go home and they were like, you can go home in a week or something. And I was like, no, I've got to get home. And they're like, why do you got to get home? And I was like, my girlfriend's pregnant. Like, and then for like the next two years, I was like, shit, like karma's going to get me. Um, yeah, you're right. That was not a funny joke. That was a horrible thing to say. Um, but so and I flew home to Hartford, Connecticut, like a couple days early. That's where my brother lives. Uh, I, didn't, I wasn't going to go home to see my parents right away. And I was like, the airport at Hartford empties out, right? And so I'm just standing there waiting. And my brother comes up and he, you know, my brother's also a veteran, but he didn't serve in, in combat. And he doesn't know what to do. And he's got a beer for me. And he's like, we just got to stop at the grocery store on the way home. And I was like, cool, because like I'm messing his day up, right? And um, I remember going into the grocery store with him. And there's a lot of things that I remember, but I remember like following him around and just being dumbstruck by the sheer number and types of like toothpaste and cereal and being like, you know, and somebody like arguing with their partner about coupons and what cereal they could use. And I just wanted to grab a box of Golden Grams and be like, just use this one. Like you, not, you don't have a real problem here. But when I look back on that now, like, I mean, that lady was with her kid, and maybe that kid loved Golden Grams, and it was his birthday, and 20 cents made a huge difference, and they were arguing about whether or not they could afford a sweet, sugary treat in the morning. But at the time, I couldn't see that. I didn't have that opportunity for empathy or compassion. I was just pissed off. And, I was, and I've been pissed off for years. And this project was so that I could just stop being angry. So I don't know if that really answers your question. That's kind of a roundabout way, but it's tough. And I think, you know, you go through multiple weeks of basic training, and when you're out of the Army, you're like, who remembers their TAPS process, <laughs> right? Transition Assistance Program. You, like, show up hungover and sleep through it. And then, um, yeah, like, when I checked out of the military hospital in Fort Bragg, they're like, do you have any sleeping problems? And I'm like, yeah, I can't sleep and I have homicidal fantasies when I see a man with a big beard. And they're like, great, you're fine, here's the VA number, good luck, you know, like, cool. And then years later, I grew a big beard, so go figure. Um, the most humbling experience. Yeah, I mean, even this stuff, right? The questions, the opportunity to interact, I think, with people. I think the most humbling experience for me is 
um, has been the, we made this movie for our friends and we're super excited that people outside of our friend group were impacted by this movie, right? And I think as somebody who is like fighting my own creative energy and spirit, because I never necessarily thought of myself as somebody who was a creative person, so that's like a constant battle. Um, and I mean, Max Lowe did a tremendous job, and Aiden Haley, Max was the director, Mac Fisher was the director of photography, and you know, Max, if you know Max's story, right, he's Conrad Anker's stepson, his dad died, was, was Conrad's climbing partner and died, and um, Conrad's been a mentor of mine for several years, and I've got to see Max kind of grow up over the years, and so I think, I, I don't think anybody else could have done this but Max, because he had experienced so much trauma in his own life at a really young age. And so I think a couple of the most humbling moments, um, and that's a really beautiful question, I think are one, how across the board, regardless of political persuasion, um, most veterans, not all, but most veterans have embraced this film and said, hey, I saw something about myself or that's made me rethink that. And that's been really beautiful across the board, left to right. Um, you know, the Fox News did a story on us, which is pretty cool. Um, and then I think the second thing is just the opportunity to interact with folks like you and share my story and share our story. And you meet one veteran, you met one veteran, but hopefully this is a window for other people to think a little bit differently about the men and women who serve. And um, the opportunity to be able to, it's a pretty big responsibility in a lot of ways um, to be up here speaking. And um, I wish I could hear the conversations people had a couple days after, you know, like, well, I'm, you know, I met this veteran and he said, <laughs> I should drop out of school and go ski. Um, I, I think you fucking rock. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. I think you rock. So, I once was the lead singer in a punk band. That band lasted about as long as a punk song, too. Any other questions? Any other? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I. I it still doesn't really feel like this happened. Like I've seen this film probably a hundred times now. She asked um, what, you know, how did, how did it feel like, how did I deal with the emotions when I came back? And so a um, little story about my life, a little insight. Um, I can be really organized on certain things and then other things just like completely fall apart, right? So a um, good example of that is I've been wearing, this is the same outfit I wore yesterday because, and getting my ski stuff ready because I was so excited to go ski with Patty and, uh, you know, and, and ski with my friends today or tomorrow in Aspen. Um, I got all my ski stuff ready and I had a stack of clothes that I totally forgot um, at home. And my wife's like, did you mean to leave your clothes? And I was like, nope, not at all. So I tell you that story to tell you the next story, which is, I had looked at the visa requirements to get into Iraq, and it said, if you have like 30 days on your passport, you're good. We were flying through Turkey. I couldn't check into my airport, in, in, in the, I couldn't check into my flight. So I was, I invite all my friends to go on a ski trip to Iraq, and then I'm like, I'll see you guys tomorrow. <laughs> I have to go to Denver and get a new passport today. And so while, again, like, like the United States government and Iraqi-backed forces are pushing ISIS out of Mosul, which is like, you know, down valley. And um, the lead commander of the U.S. forces at the time, or one of the, the lead battalion commander, is this guy named uh, Lieutenant Colonel Pat Work, who I've known forever. We played rugby against each other. He ended up being my operations officer when I was in Iraq. And until he showed up in Iraq, the last time I had seen him 
we may or may not have been being separated in a bar in Savannah from a fight we had with each other from a rugby game. And, um, and now he's like in charge. And I was like, Hey man, I hear you're in Iraq. And he's like, you know, he's like, so are you. Right. And I was like, yeah, I'm going skiing. And he's like, you know, like literally the same day that he's starting a massive combat process, I I'm going skiing. And, but because of that, because it was a day late and because I was just rushing, rushing the whole time and like go, transferring through Istanbul is the only thing perhaps more frustrating than Istanbul is the flight from Denver to Aspen takes 22 minutes and then waiting for your luggage takes 45. Just, I'm just throwing that out there. That was my experience today. Turkey that, so I, I don't think I really dealt with those emotions until um, later in that day when we were looking for a battery for something like a big, you know, lithium battery. And I found myself alone on a street in Erbil. And yes, it's Kurdistan, but it looks just like the rest of Iraq. And there's the wires hanging down and all the smells came back and everything came back. And like, I'm in the street and I stop and there's no Humvee. There's no armored personnel carrier. I don't have my M4. I don't have my body armor on. And because of my, like, like that ever really mattered, like my body armor was so tiny. I was like, big man in a little Kevlar. <laughs> to the point where I once got stopped by the MNFI, the Multinational Forces Iraq commander, for not wearing my knee pads. I was like, I can't fit in the Humvee. Like, I'm not going to put my knee pads on. And I remember he was like, what's your rank? And I was like, individual ready reserve, sir. Which is a funny joke if you understand the IRR, but um, it's fair that you don't. Um, <laughs> you weren't in the service, likely. So, um, so that was really trippy, like being there and then realizing I could just keep walking and that I was an oddity, but nobody really cared. And even when I was in Baghdad, most people were just trying to go about their day. And like, I think about Baghdad a lot and, um, I hadn't, I, this guy reached out to me yesterday, um, and he was in the unit that replaced mine. I hadn't talked to that guy in 11 years. He hadn't seen the film. I don't know why I reached out, LinkedIn or something like that. And he wrote a story about, he was like, I remember when you got hit by an IED and he was like, you're so mad, you're so angry. And we had done so much in that community and I remember I was told by the neighborhood council not to take it personally. And I was like, how the fuck can I not take that personally? But over the years what I've come to realize is, you know, for example, there is no permafrost in Baghdad. So the sewage system is built about four to eight feet underground. And so what that means is you can drive cars over that, but if you drive a tank over that, it's gonna crush the sewage system and that's gonna seep up. And the way that Iraq's and Baghdad's urban system is configured, people spend a lot of time in these little plazas, these accidental little plazas in outside their houses on the streets. And now we have taken their living room and we have filled it up with shit. So when that individual is shooting at me, right, I've just given his entire family an opportunity for E. coli and they don't have access to healthcare systems because we decided that everybody who is a Bathist was gonna be removed, 
even though most people joined the bath party because that was how you got a job. And somebody probably handed that individual 10 to 20 bucks to pull a trigger as an American Humvee drove by. Not at the moment. And that's why I think it's, but 11 years later, when I'm back in Erbil, I can process that. And I think it's one of the hard things that we have to do. And I, I mean, again, this is just me. Like, I encourage you to ask other veterans. I encourage you or talk to Paul or talk to other folks. This is my viewpoint. Lots of people disagree with me. But I think one of the hardest things to do is to allow recently returned veterans to hold on to their anger. You can't say to a recently returned veteran, it's going to get better. Just get outside. Did you see Stacy's movie? He went and skied in Iraq. Like, I oftentimes, like even now, I hear myself speaking, and in the back of my head, like 27-year-old Stacy is like, really, dude? Fuck you. It's not going to get better. And like, you don't have PTSD. You're not weak. It's everybody else's problem. And I think that speaks to what I was trying to talk about a little bit earlier is like, we have to let people feel their pain. We need, and we need, to, we need to surround them, and we need to keep them safe and know they are loved and, and taken care of and give them opportunities for dignity, but allow them to have that journey. And I think that's the hardest part. And I think it's one of the things I know, like talking with some of the Vietnam vets in the room and you know, a lot of stuff I'm like, never again, like we wanna make sure that these systems are here when veterans come home, which is great. But when veterans come home, in the same way that I look at my dad still, and we're still litigating crap that happened when I was in high school, right? What could my dad have done to help me move forward? I don't know. I, I mean, I have a lot of ideas I've written in journals. I've talked to my therapist a lot about it. But so I think that's one of the hardest part is allowing people their anger and allowing people their hurt and not trying to minimize it or compromise it or compare it. And, and I think it's the same if you've had close friend, if, you're, if you have depression, if you've got cancer, if you've had a bad day, if you, you know, these are the things that we just have to, like, if anything, like, allow people to be hurt and allow people to have joy, I think would be the ultimate message I'd have. Good job, Dave. He's like, we're going to take one last question. It's going to be mine. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Virginia Tech. The question is, how do we help? How do we help you and your goals? How do we help veterans? Yeah, I mean, you have an amazing opportunity. So, you know, I, I'm super stoked to be helping out Huts for Vets and, and Paul, and there's lots of opportunities you can get involved in locally. Um, Weirdly enough, it does matter uh, on social media. You know, Facebook's helpful for us to get more sponsorships. Um, so check out Adventure Not War there. Share the film widely. Share it with your friends. It's online. It's easy to find. Um, you know, go to Combat Flip Flops and type in Shred Iraq. Get yourself a Ski Iraq t-shirt uh, or an Adventure Not War hat. Those are some easy ways and great stocking stuffers. Um, but, yeah, I mean, just... Keep following the Facebook space a little bit and Adventure Not War. Um, it's going to be a little while because we have funding for our next project. But um, So that's the big focus. And then um, when we come back in March, there will be kind of a relaunch and a rebrand. Um, so, you know, and if, if you're interested, if you have access to financial resources, you or your company or your philanthropy or your private giving uh, or your marketing dollars are interested, 
and you want to be part of what I think is a pretty amazing movement, get in touch. Um, it's pretty easy to find me, I will say, with the name of Stacy Bear, S-T-A-C-Y-B-A-R-E. If you do that search at work and you have an IT department, it can be problematic. It is a Serbo-Croat word for puddles. It is the English word for naked. And um, I'll leave it at that. Thank you for listening to Aspen Entrepreneurs Podcast. Big thanks to Klug Properties for presenting the Aspen Entrepreneurs Showcase events and this podcast. To find out more about Chris Klug's business, head over to klugproperties.com. That's K-L-U-G properties.com. This event was also sponsored by Huts for Vets, who shared a film at the event and the arts campus at Willits, who let us use their space, the temporary. If you'd like to hear previous episodes of the podcast, you can find them at iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or online at aspenentrepreneurs.com slash podcast. Please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the podcast to more listeners and tell a friend if you think they might enjoy it. This podcast is produced by Level Head Audio. If you're looking to create your own podcast, need help with one that you've started on already, looking to get better audio for live streams, or anything else in the audio realm, send an email to lucas at levelheadaudio.com. Thank you.